Welcome to the Arate Podcast. My name is Richard Triggs, and today's guest is Darren Sherlaw, founder and CEO of Sherlaw's Group, and most recently ambassador for the Sherlaw's Foundation. wonderful to have you along today and I'm really looking forward to bringing this conversation to you with Darren Sherlaw. Darren is an Australian who's been living in London and he was in Australia recently to run a series of workshops for his organisation, the Sherlaw's Group. Before I introduce Darren to you, let me introduce myself for those people who are new to the Arate podcast. My name is Richard Triggs and I'm the managing partner of Arate Executive. And we recruit CEOs, senior leaders, and non-executive directors for our clients throughout Australia. We also provide a range of career coaching and advocacy solutions for senior executives and non-executive directors who are actively looking for a new role. So if I can be of any assistance to you, please reach out to me via our website or LinkedIn, and I look forward to seeing how I can help. Let me now introduce to you Darren Sherlock. Darren Sherlaw's passion is mathematics. His master's degree in finance took him into the world of funds management. Whilst working as a funds manager, Darren spoke with hundreds of CEOs and business executives each year, working out which businesses to add to his investment portfolio. In this work, Darren saw the same issues emerging at exactly the same points along the business journey. He also uncovered trends from those businesses that managed to navigate this journey swiftly to manage growth. At age 32, Darren left the funds management industry and set up Sherlaw's Group, a consultancy that specializes in helping CEOs and business leaders accelerate their growth and business valuation. Within a few years, Sherlaw's was number seven on the BRW Fast 100, and today sits in 12 cities across the world. Darren today is one of the most highly sought after global speakers on business performance. He now lives in the UK with his family. Sit back and enjoy this conversation with Darren Shaw. Well, Darren, welcome to the Arate podcast. It's great to have you along today. And I know you've taken some time out today from running a conference for your team. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Thank you. And uh, you're normally based in the UK? Yeah, in London. Okay. Uh, and how have you uh, been in Australia for for this, this visit? This visit was a, a trip through Cambodia, actually, on our annual partners retreat okay. for a week, and then a week in Australia doing conferences and events. Right. And so um, Cambodia for a particular reason, or you just pick a different place no, yeah, every we, time? We pick a different place every year. Right. So it's, uh, it's, a, it's a fun exercise of trying to find somewhere in the world where we haven't been as a uh-huh. group, and so Cambodia was the trip. And so if you think about all the different places you've been, where would Cambodia rate as compared to some of the it other was a, It was an amazing trip, and there's uh, 32 partners in our group, and most of them hadn't been there. Okay. So, and it was, you know, it was in the top three. Oh, great. And so um, who gets to pick where you go next time? 
our, our, we have a management team and so our COO right. re- researches us, researches the market, picks somewhere. So right. the year before was uh, Innsbruck, Austria for skiing. Okay. The year before that was um, over in Tofino Island off Vancouver in Canada. Right. Uh, bear bear watching and okay. stuff like that. So every year is completely different. And do they have complete autonomy as to what they pick, or uh, yes, yeah. no, yeah. or do people uh, vie and uh, for their own choices? No, uh, well, that's, as I said, it's a bit of a survey as to right. where roughly in the world we want to oh, go. Cool. There's a bit of momentum towards South America next time, so right. I think it'll be one of those countries. Okay, and so you're in Cambodia for what a week. Yeah, this uh, it's like a five-day program. Right, and so how much is play and how much is uh, strategy? Uh, it's about roughly 50-50. Okay, okay. And so, um, and now you're here in Australia for a few days and you're doing uh, some internal um, uh, workshops and you're also offering an external workshop for your clients, is that right? Yeah, we had, uh, we had a two-day program in Sydney. Right. For clients. Okay. Taking them through... Uh, the revenue side of business, yeah. how to build that. And then uh, we've got a one-day program up here in Brisbane. Right. And, Similar topic. Uh, different, different topic. Right. Uh, we call that one the open house. Okay. And it's all about the management side of running businesses. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, two-day internal program. Okay, right. Oh, great. Well, uh, we're going to get into a lot more about what Sherlock's is all about a little later in this conversation. But the way I like to start it is just um, uh, perhaps have a chat to us about, you know, where your career began, your early life, and, and take us through the journey to uh, where you are now. Well, I come from uh, I come from a very traditional family in right. Australia, uh, me and my brother. Born in Sydney, raised on a beach in Newcastle. Uh, back to Sydney when I was 19, joined okay. the military. Yeah. Uh, so six years as an officer in the Navy. Okay. Uh, whilst what, I was there... What made you do that? Why were you attracted to joining the Navy? Um, I just uh, I just had a mate who had joined 12 months previous to me. Right. And he explained that what they were doing and it just sounded like the right way to go. Okay, yeah. Um, and I was on, I was on the uh, supply distribution side in there, so... Right. You sort of go, military is amazing, you go through pretty quickly the things that take a long time in civilian society to get to. So, you know, I was 23 years of age with 200 odd staff. Right. And, you know, so you learn quickly, so. Okay, and is that because they're just better at teaching or is is it because you're looking at broad issues but within a narrow scope of focus? You're running, you're running major operations with with prospectively a lot of young people sure. on board, you know, military recruits, yep. young people. So yep. you got you just got to learn quick. Right. A uh, couple of degrees, uh, all heading towards the fund management space. Yep. So 25, jumped out of the Navy and jumped into the fund management world. So was your intention right from the get-go that Navy was only a short-term thing or...? I signed up for a six-year term. Right. Uh, so it was always going to end at 25 right and I always wanted to get into the fun space okay so um, what was the attraction towards doing that well I'm a bit of a mathematician by trade right I've heard um, you're excellent at a Sudoku I'm very <laughs> very afraid with uh, <laughs> with all of those sorts right. I, I, I'm, I was the geek at school right um, okay you know, if you if you're trying to get a profile for me I was the guy that but he you know get laughed at all the time because I was so, so pocket bloody. protector yeah, in exactly, a, exactly. Right. Um, calculator watch uh, I, you know, did all the mathematics competitions and got all the way through to the like Australian level bloody mathematics right. stuff. So I just loved it. And but I imagine joining the navy, you must have um, been, you know, uh, quite sort of physically 
athletic as well because that's quite a prerequisite to going into the military. Absolutely. Right, yeah, so that's yeah. an unusual combination between... Sport and maths yeah, is, right. is, is, is my bag. Right. Um, and, uh, yeah, so maths to me wasn't actuary. I couldn't see myself doing that, but mm. I could see myself doing all this fun stuff. Okay, yeah. So I uh, so studied all that, got into the fund world, worked with, with companies like Warburgs mm-hmm. and Lend Lease in Australia. Mm-hmm. And what um, sort of things were you doing with them? Well, I was on the buy side, so I would run a team of fund guys. Right. And uh, with, with my other background, military and all that sort of stuff, was, was able to manage a team get out there and see the client base yep and so I ended up doing a lot of speaking on on stage and stuff okay and would go and meet CEOs and stuff of big businesses corporates you know and so over like I don't know over about a five or six year period you're meeting CEO after CEO after CEO and looking at business plan after business plan after business plan of big companies you you just get used to how these things work Mm -hmm. and which business plans written by which consulting firm mm. and which business plan works and which one doesn't work right. and you just get this outsider view or perspective mm-hmm. of you know what which businesses will increase their share price and which ones won't mm-hmm. and I did that I did it very well I mean right. I had a really good run in the fund space okay so a couple of questions around that so um, I mean, many people go into that space, but it would not be fair to say that everybody does that very well. I mean, if they did, then you know, predicting uh, share price and so on would not be the magical sort of science that it is now. So, yep. what do you think it was about the way you were sort of orientated that enabled you to get some clearer uh, vision about those things than probably the majority of people? Uh, every fund manager in the world has their own, if I call it IP, intellectual property sets around how they think things work yep. and uh, how business works, how the markets work and so on. Um, my style is, uh, I'm, a, I'm a trend analysis guy as, mm-hmm. as opposed to um, spe- specifics around stuff. So I, I just look at a hundred years of the markets, I don't look at the last week. Yeah. Um, and I just looked for trends across the last hundred years, and so uh, in February two thousand and seven, for example, I went out to our client base and told them the recession was coming. Right. Um, and when they asked, "How do you know this?" I actually pulled out a hundred years right. worth of hundred years worth of data. They not didn't call you chicken little. No. <laughs> the sky no, is falling. No. But, um, uh, and so you were able to look at a macro, macro. Um, but then bring it right down to the micro in terms of then looking at the individual organisation. Exactly. Right. And, and so some people start micro and try to go macro. And okay. I'm the, I'm the macro who goes to micro. Right. And what about, um, uh, I work in recruitment and so uh, I'm quite often uh, talking to people who are wanting to move out of the military into corporate. Yep. And I mean... It, would be fair to say that there's a traditional sort of view as to uh, the applicability of skills learnt in military and how they can be applied within a corporate environment. Yep. Well, you know, what are your thoughts about that? No, uh, you've picked a bloody touchy favourite topic. Oh, well, there um, you go. I've done my job. You, you, you have. Uh, I, I generally think that skills in military are a lot higher than are assessed in civilian society. Right. I think generally civilians don't understand what happens in the military sure. and therefore it's a big black box to yeah, them. Yeah. And so people turn up and they say, you know, what have you been doing in the, in the last few years in the military? And they go, oh, they've been firing missiles. And we go, well, I don't really need too many of them, buddy. Yeah. Those sort of people. But if you actually dig underneath what people in the military are actually doing mm-hmm. and forget about 
missiles and wars and boats mm-hmm. and all that sort of stuff, then what you've got is huge project skills yeah. that are given to people at a very young age mm-hmm. and massive leadership management skills, you know, that and we're, we're, we're drilled on them. Right. You know, and so managing people and managing big convoys of moving things around sure. in a project space. So take, I, 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 I love military people because they, they, they get things done. Right. You know, they're just they just got to get the job done type people. So before we just move off that, so what do you think needs to happen? Do you think the military has a responsibility to be better at promoting those skills so that when people are exiting the commercial world um, has a better appreciation? I was invited to talk to the um, uh, Admiral, Admiralty Board in London a couple of years ago. Right. Which was a huge honour. Sure. And uh, they asked me the exact same question. They right. said, what are we going to do here? And I said to them, you've you got you to get, get people exiting the military into good jobs. Yeah. And it's then, not, then people just... would want to join at the front end. Right. You know, like it's... So it's part of, that would be part of the attraction strategy because people know that they're going to have a good exit. Yep. It's, it's not too similar to professional sports people. You know, in Australia, you have all of these rugby stars who go off the rails because they're bored and they've got lots of money and, and then they find it incredibly hard to make that transition. Yep. Um, and it seems that the professional sporting industry is starting to invest in educating and supporting people through that. So yep. that makes sense the military would as well. Exactly. Yeah, great. Okay, so um, you're in funds management, uh, you're um, uh, out there, you're meeting all of these CEOs and you're starting to identify reoccurring themes and trends, etc. So what happened from there? Uh, I got to uh, 32 years of age and uh, I was looking at fund managers who were in their 50s and stuff and thinking uh, these guys are all burnt out and working 300 odd days a year and so I I got a bit disillusioned with the fund industry as an industry Mm -hmm. just at a personal level not Mm -hmm. not nothing else and um, and then I was introduced to um, two ladies running a business okay and I was asked if I would pop around and see them and give them a perspective on the, the valuation of their company. Right. And I was asked to do this by a mate. Okay. And so I went around, I was asked to go to their house, so I went yeah. around to their house and what I, uh, what I thought I heard from the accountant, uh, my mate, was that they were, um, I thought they were turning over about 300 million. Right. And so I went, well, it's, you know, in, in my space, well, that's a little bit small, but I could right. pro- probably do it, you know. And so I went and saw these ladies. It was all just a, it was all just a favour type thing. Right. Uh, and then I met these two ladies, and they said, um, "Well, we're running this travel business, and it's uh, and the profit on the company is three hundred grand." Right. And I went, "That's a long way short of three hundred million." Yeah, you know, sure. Like, and I just went, "What am I doing here?" Sort of thing. I got talking to them for an hour. I tried to help them out. We got to the end of the hour, and uh, the ladies were uh, 61 and 62. Right. Wanted to retire, and had been given an offer on their business for 900 grand. Mm-hmm. Um, and they so said three times three multiple. times multiple. Right. right. Yeah. They said, you know, what do you what do you think? Right. And I said, look, I'm way out of my depth here. This is not, this is not my bag. Um, but hey, look, I I reckon you should be getting a lot more than that for this thing. Right. Based on what you've told me. Yeah. Because um, of like the intellectual property and, and yeah, so yeah. on. So what I was good at doing in the fund space is, is, is finding assets. Uh-huh. Finding assets in people. Yeah. Finding assets in companies. Mm-hmm. And the more assets you've got, the more income you make. Mm-hmm. So everyone, in my world, everyone goes off and tries managing companies to make more profit. Mm-hmm. But profit comes from assets. Right. So 
I go running around building assets and sure. finding assets, yeah. and then you get the more profit. Mm-hmm. And these ladies had amazing assets in their mm-hmm. business, so they weren't selling the asset to the buyer. They were just selling the three hundred grand. Right. And so I said, look, I think we could swing this over. So sure. So I didn't. I did an agreement with them that I'd help them. Um, nine months later, I sold the business for eleven point two million. Wow. And I went back to the accountant and I said, how many more of these have you got? Sure. Uh, and he said, you know, looks lots. lots. <laughs> um, and I went, right. So I got out of the fund industry and set up uh, set up our company. Sure. Yeah. Right. And that was back in... 1999. 1999. So, yeah. so uh, um, out of interest of when you went originally into that situation with uh, the two ladies. Yep. And you'd come from you know hundreds of million dollar uh, to billions of dollar type organisations. Yep. What were some of the uh, similarities um, that you saw between small business and large business, which enabled you to still be able to deliver good outcomes for such a small business in comparison? Uh, well, I was, I, as I describe, I was way out of my depth. I didn't understand anything about small businesses. Right. I was just corporate, and, yeah. and I knew how corporates worked, but that was it. And when I met the two ladies, I just reapplied all of the IP I used in the fund industry in, into small business. Yeah. And, and I ended up having to go all the way back to basic, basically zero revenue and rebuild all the models. You right. Know? But obviously, <coughs> underlying principles, the foundations were as applicable to large corporate as they were to small business. Then. Yeah. And, uh, and I subsequently ended up working out that uh, a lot of corporates are actually a conglomerate of a lot of small businesses. Mm-hmm. And so all of these numbers are actually applicable mm-hmm. in in a, in a corporate as much as they are in a small business. And you say that because largely corporates grow through acquiring small business. Yeah, I mean, I've I've now sat in meetings with you know sixty CEOs in a room, and you walk around and say, well, what have you got? And someone says, well, I'm managing three hundred and uh, you know odd staff, and someone else says, I'm managing thirty three thousand staff, and yeah. they're all sitting in the same room of right. some big conglomerate. Yeah. And so, you know, startup divisions, acquisitions, they're all, you know, innovative ideas that mm-hmm. come out and now mm-hmm. of corporates, they're all startups. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so the fact that you walked away from your funds management career to start essentially a, a small business, a, a business consulting to small business, um, other than you saw a great income opportunity here in helping these companies to, to scale and, um, and share in the rewards, was there other um, motivators for you wanting to make that move? Well, I, as I said, I was a bit disillusioned with funds, so right. I, I guess I was looking for a, a, an alternative. Yeah, uh, I knew nothing about consulting; it wasn't that wasn't my bag. Sure. Um, and I, I, I started getting asked by one, as soon as I announced I was getting out, I started getting asked by corporate mm-hmm. to come in and have a look at the business and give them a perspective of how a fund manager would view their strategy. Right. Right. So I started getting CEOs and senior level people in organizations throwing me their business plans and saying, can you have a look at that? What can you see? Right. We've given it to all these other consulting houses, et cetera, et cetera, and they're management consulting. Yeah. And Darren, you just look at it all very differently. Right, sure. And so it was just, it just started there. Right, and, okay. And grew. Okay, and so uh, you had a mate who was an accountant yep. who referred you that first client. Yep. So was that quite a, um, was that the genesis of the business, you working with him, uh, looking after a range of his clients, or how quickly did you scale out from there? Uh, well, it took me three months. Right. Um, it was amazingly quick. 
So three three months later, I had a full book of clients. Right. I, I couldn't take any more clients as on. A, as a one-man band? As a one-man band. Right, okay. And so I then went and approached a mate of mine in the fund industry, and I said, have a look at this. Right. And he said, well, I'm thinking about getting out myself. And I said, well, <laughs> hurry up. Right. So, uh, so yeah, it's I sort of started in November, and by February, there were six of us. Okay, right. And so... Uh, almost 20 years, 17 years. Yep. Um, so t- talk us through uh, some of the key milestones during that time um, that you'd hang your hat on. You'd say, well, this is really, you know, how the business has grown and succeeded and, and evolved. Well, uh, I- I'm now a classic entrepreneur. So right. we've, um, we've had good times and we've had hard times. Sure. And from 1999 to 2003, mm-hmm. uh, we grew the Australian business from uh, from zero to six million in revenue. Right. We were number seven on the BRW Fast 100. Okay. We won the Telstra Small Business Award. Right. Like we were doing really well. Sure. So we went overseas. Okay. Uh, we set up in the UK and the US. Yep. In the same year, oh uh, three through to about oh six. Um, we got the revenues up to about 16 million uh, Aussie mm-hmm. and doing well. Yeah. Uh, and recession hit in 07 and, you know, we got hit about like everyone else does. Sure. Uh, by 09, we'd consolidated and started opening up more territories again. Mm-hmm. So we're now 12 cities around the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, we handle about 600 odd uh, clients a year, yeah. contracts a year, mm-hmm. uh, across about 100 of us roughly. Mm-hmm. So you know, it, it, uh, the 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 post recession period is looks like the pre recession right. period, and in the middle there was that three year a three year period where we where we got smashed up by yeah, the, right. by a global thing. Uh huh. And so um, before we start talking about shares and, um, and what you offer to your clients in more detail, uh, you did some early qualifications: Bachelor of Commerce, Masters of Commerce. Um, you know, uh, you moved into this new space in terms of your own. Uh, skills as a leader and as a business owner and, and what were some of the things over this period of uh, 17 years or so that you've done in terms of investing in your own capability to ensure that you're able to continue to deliver great value to the Sherlock's business? We, we uh, on day one, introduced this notion that every single partner in the business had to do 12 days of training a year. Right. Which is, which is a lot. Okay. Um, I think I think taken taken a day out every month to do training, you know, consistently every mm-hmm. year for seventeen years. That's been a big investment. So and they pers- can pick what they want to do it in. We we offer uh, we offer both. So we offer a, a, a group set of programs where we're where we're running stuff where we put all the guys through it, and then you know we give them X number of days a year where they go off and and select mm-hmm. some stuff. Uh, so yeah, look, personal development's massively high mm-hmm. on our agenda. And so, what would be some of the things that you've done in terms of your twelve training days that have been particularly powerful for you? The uh, we go into the technical stuff initially, and so learning skills that I never had back in the fun days around management okay. and leadership yep. uh, were big ones. Uh, learning learning skills like coaching skills mm-hmm. and stuff in a managerial construct. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's been amazing. Mm-hmm. We've done a whole bunch of, um, call it spiritual work, okay. in terms of being able to understand why people fall into holes and stuff yep. in, in life. Sometimes when you go in to see people and help them, it's a business issue, and mm-hmm. sometimes it's not. Sometimes sure. there's an issue outside of the business which is affecting the business. Yep. So we had to learn both sides of the mm-hmm. equation, not mm-hmm. just the business side. And so that was a real eye-opener for someone mm-hmm. coming out of the fun mathematical world. I bet. 
Um, so you know they're 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 the big ones, right? Um, and and as you've evolved, you know, uh, have you been able to identify the gaps within yourself and say, I recognise I've got a weakness here. I need to intentionally invest in in uh, overcoming that. I, I'm um, I'm uh, my team get bored listening to the gaps that I have. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I'm the first to acknowledge that. All I, right. You know, I wasn't trained. I'm not MBA trained. Sure. I wasn't trained to run a business. I didn't start in a business. I started as a fund manager. So, yeah. uh, so you know, I I sit back with them all the time and go, look, I'm really good at designing the IP. Yeah. I'm really good at applying it. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm there's better people in the world than me mm-hmm. at managing staff, mm-hmm. and uh, and you know project management and process skills and that that's not me mm-hmm. and so I just surround myself with a team of people who can do that sort of yeah. stuff and uh, I know f- through knowing Tim the Australian CEO for a long time that uh, Shirless is constantly evolving in terms of the type of offerings it's bringing to the market yep um, talk us through how that's evolved over that 17 years we, we tried to just go with the market so we talked recession a minute ago is in in February 2007 we went out and said look this is coming up we're we're changing the programs from growth to you know how to survive a recession right and so we ran that out for about five six years right um and so pre-recession we were we we uh, flew all of our clients into brussels and for a three-day conference got some interpreters in and all that sort of stuff and we sat down and explained why the recession was coming, the mathematics yeah. behind it, and then gave them a list of a half a dozen things that they had to do with their business right now wow. to, to get ready to go. And out of interest, uh, would you say a hundred percent of your clients said, "Yep, we 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 even though we don't necessarily see it ourselves, we're going to trust you and and follow your um, recommendations"? Or was there a certain percentage that said, "You know what, uh, we uh, we're just going to be bullish and and." keep doing what we're doing anyway it's uh, it's one of the things i talk about on stage when people ask about that period because it was about 50 50 right um a half just deep dive straight into okay we'll go with you yeah and and the other half about 12 months later were ringing up saying get back out of here right. and, and help us yeah right. um and we've had some key relationships so you know we got great relationships with some banks for example so yeah. there were some some bank people there and some accounting firms in there and you know, we about, I don't know, about four or five years later, we had banks putting all mm-hmm. of their clients in a room, saying, "Look, Darren's given us every date across right. this period. You know, right. you need to listen to this." So it, it got a groundswell yeah. once people started seeing the right. dates come through, and because we were get, I mean, we were literally giving people the date that things would happen. Right. It's right. interesting. I watched that movie that came out recently, The Big Short. The Big Short. Uh, yeah. And I found, I don't know how completely uh, truthful it is, but certainly it appeared to me watching that, that when these guys are saying, you know, we're heading for crisis, a lot of the people knew it. Yep. They just didn't want to admit it because they they on too much of a good thing. Too much, making too much money. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I imagine that must be true for small business too. Uh, if they've got a business that they're saying, well, oh, Darren, I, know, I hear what you're saying, but at the moment, you know, we're making good money here. I, I don't want to necessarily uh, heed your advice because that means that um, life's going to get pretty hard. Well, the, our corporate clients struggled to change simply because they had investors in their ears and the investors wanted to see the good times continue. Yeah. So. Yeah. Our, our, our corporate clients, uh, whether they were a divisional CEO or, or group CEO, both levels, they were struggling to make the change, even mm-hmm. though they understood the mm-hmm. changes. Uh, our small business clients, um, yeah, look, when, when, when they were making really good money at the time, 
and I'm sitting there saying you need to cut back your staff and cash up bank yeah. accounts and all this sort of stuff. You, you know, it's a, I acknowledged it to them. Mm-hmm. I said, look, this is a big call. Mm-hmm. You know, it's um, if if it if it's right, you you know, it'll and if it's wrong, you're going to miss out on 12 months worth of cash. Yeah, you know, like yeah. you miss out on 12 months of good times. Sure. Yeah. So it was a big call. Right. Um, and so I suppose you're saying, uh, okay, you're potentially risking this 12 months of good times, but. Um, it's my thoughts are it's so likely to go in the other direction that it's a risk worth taking. Yeah, and uh, and you know in construct we then adjusted the material throughout mm. different periods. So you know post 2011 we switched back to growth. Yeah, and so we just got them through the recession right. and then said right now we're back in growth mode. Here's how you do. Right. Here's how you. Here's how you do a post recession growth. We're not in a boom stage. Yeah. but here's where we go. Okay, and we're now out giving people uh, economic material mm-hmm. around the last hundred years type stuff Mm -hmm. and so we highlight things to people like um, you know 1999 through to 2012 13 was a 14 year period of flat yeah Uh, 1981 to 1999 was an 18 year period of uplift Mm -hmm. and and 14 years prior to that was a flat Mm -hmm. and 18 years prior to that was an uplift right so there's a trend there yeah and so we're we're now uh, roughly three years in to an 18-year uplift. Well, I, I'm looking forward to experiencing more of that. Let me tell you. <laughs> and so, I mean, a lot of this uh, data that you're drawing upon is pretty available. Um, why do you think it is that uh, you've been able to um, analyse the data and come up with um, very uh, strong um, with predictions which you've actualized yeah. when so many people who would be looking at that same data haven't been able to do that? It's uh, I, I kind of get it down to um, you know everyone's got agendas yeah and so when I was in the fund industry people used to say well if you knew all this in the fund industry what what, what did you do and I said well in the fund industry you're structured around prospectuses and the prospectuses that I would run to would often say I couldn't carry any more than 10% cash right and I had to invest the 90% right so I could sit there in the fund industry and see this thing coming a mile away yeah but I'm stuck I have to invest 90% right. so all you can then do is switch out of aggressive stocks and more towards defensive mm-hmm. stock mm-hmm. and that's all you could do mm-hmm. so I think it's an agenda issue there's right. okay. you know government's going to look at these statistics in a certain way I mean mm-hmm. it's irresponsible for a government to come out in February 2007 and say hey listen there's a you know there's a big crash coming mm-hmm. and that would just cause chaos mm-hmm. so they can't say it sure the big banks can't say it yeah the fund managers can't do anything about it mm-hmm. so you know we just end up drifting okay and so, and so now um, you're saying we're three years into 18 years of better times yep. um, and you're saying that Shula's changes its offering depending on what's happening at a macro sort of level yep. so how has that impacted or uh, modified what you're now taking to the market and offering to your clients in terms of uh, timings it, it depends whether it's a corporate client or the small business okay. client this so with small business client, for example, if I start there, you know, 1981 to 1999 was the boom mm-hmm. period. But 1981, six years later, there was the 1987 crash. Mm-hmm. So we highlight to people that through the booms, there mm-hmm. are little crashes sure. along the way. So people have to get their mindset around when do they want to sell companies mm-hmm. or in a corporate space, when do people want to retire? Mm-hmm. So it talks to people about timings going mm-hmm. up these things. And then in terms of... Uh, growth cycles you know there's four stages of that 18 years mm-hmm. going up so 
we're giving people quite specific data at the moment about how much to invest and what to invest in mm -hmm. at this stage. And that's dependent upon their industry and their geography and, and other um, more specific variables other than purely a global macroeconomic environment. In a specific sense, it goes down to uh, country sector industries and uh, the specific numbers we have mapped on data sets are at what point in a, in a cycle for a company should they be investing in which items in a revenue sense all the way up a growth curve. Right. So examples are... Um, you know, at at 170 million of revenue, mm -hmm. we know a lot of businesses get stuck in in a hole. Mm -hmm. They need to change their management systems around, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And we've worked with some big banks around the world, gone into their databases and said, "Here's our numbers. What can you see?" And they come back and they go, "Oh my God, we have a lot of businesses stuck at 170 million." Right. So, so we've tested the databases against against other big groups like yeah. the, big, the big accounting firms and mm -hmm. the banks. And they're getting the same numbers coming through. So th then at 220 million, you need to do something different. At 300 million, you need to do something different. Mm -hmm. At 450 million, something different. Right. 600 million, something different. 700 million, you're back into the next hole. Right, so the so predictor is purely based on uh, that number rather than other, um, e you've been able to narrow it down to that's the causal factor for this particular part of the business cycle. Yep. Right, fascinating. Yeah. And so you um, you said that you started your Shirley's business with a, uh, two ladies uh, and a uh, travel business. Yep. Um, 17 years later, give us an example of, you know, what would be one of your uh, more interesting corporate clients that you're working with? Uh, corporate. Um, corporate's clients come to us of all different shapes and sizes as well. And so at the bigger end, we have uh, businesses coming to us asking us for this share price work. Yeah. So we still get people at the top end say to us, can you have a look at my business strategy? Mm -hmm. Can you can you tell me whether, you know, investors would like this? Can you tell me whether it'd line up with the rest of the thing? So we do a lot of, lot of review of strategy yeah. in that sense and then run run the one-day, two-day off-site type stuff. Right. The other stuff we do a lot of now is uh, we designed all of our own profiling tools. Okay. And we did it from a fund perspective rather than from uh, personality-led, right. you know, HR-led sure. stuff. We, we went, so example, we went down the pathway of looking at risk. Yeah. And we, we started to look at businesses that were running a um, nice management team and whether we used Myers-Briggs or DISC, it, it showed up that these these managers should have got along nicely. Right. And then they blew up. Yeah. You know, and we were like, well, hang on a minute, why'd they blow up? All mm -hmm. of this stuff said that they shouldn't. Mm -hmm. And we picked it back to risk. Yeah. And so if you think of risk as a profile uh, and imagine scores from, let's say, 0 to 10, mm -hmm. so 10 being you're willing to take risk in business, zero being you're not willing to take mm -hmm. any risk in business, uh, we were walking back into these teams and there was four people and we got their risk profiles measured. Right. And three of them would come out in the seven to eight range and one of them was coming out in the three to four range. Right. And and also, well, so although their personalities and all that sort of stuff mm -hmm. got along nicely, the guy who was scoring three to four just couldn't get along with the mm -hmm. other team because mm -hmm. uh, they just wanted to take higher risk all the time. Right. And as soon as you put that into a, into a room and get it discussed, yeah. Suddenly, all these light bulbs go yeah. on, and people are like, "Oh, okay, we get now why you." Yeah, I've done that profile, yeah. and uh, uh, at a conference that Tim uh, he led this session, and it yep. was certainly very revealing. Yep. And so, um, 
without breaching any confidentiality around specific clients and so on. Yep. If you're talking about you've got a team there, you overlay this um, uh, a profiling tool, suddenly it sticks out like the proverbial yep. as to why there's conflict. Yep. What What are some of the, um, the positive outcomes that have come from that realisation in a, from a quantifiable perspective, the, uh, the, the uh, one of the th- big things that businesses are pushing at the moment is diversity. Yeah, and so corporates are con- there's this constant agenda around mm-hmm. getting diversity in, and mm-hmm. that and that's ethnic diversity, it's, sure. it's gender diversity, it's all this sort of stuff. And so one of the things we say is, look, diversity therefore has a positive. Yeah. But with every positive, there's a fallout. Mm-hmm. There's a negative side of, of that. So the, the, the negative side of diversity, of course, is conflict. Right. So if, if that diversity is not managed well, sure. then you just end up with conflict in yeah. the room. So most of the positives around these profiling tools, so there's four, and if you just link them, you get a nice set. So things like uh, finding out what people's risks are mm-hmm. helps people make faster decisions mm-hmm. and work better together as teams. Mm-hmm. Uh, the second one we do is all around communications, and this is communication between people, irrespective of personalities again. Yeah. And people just naturally have different types of personalities inside comms. Mm-hmm. So if I'm the mathematician and you're a creative, we're just going to comms differently. Right. If yeah. you're able to measure that in some way mm-hmm. and, and get that out, then, right. then you can reduce conflict in a team Mm -hmm. and each time you reduce conflict in a team the team goes faster they Mm -hmm. perform better and so on and so on the the third the third one we do is all around uh, and this is the one we've had the most uh, the most runway with corporates yeah it looks at um, the topic of um, are you a leader or are you a manager right well we think there's a third profile which is the entrepreneur yeah so we believe inside corporates there's entrepreneurial profile people who like to make change, mm-hmm. give ideas, et cetera, et cetera. There's the leader profile, which mm-hmm. is the people who like to work with people mm-hmm. and they get things done with people. And there's the manager profile. Yeah. And these are the people who actually make all the money. And make so, the money for the business. Yeah, make yeah. the money for the business. Yeah, it's interesting I, because I interview predominantly CEOs and chairs for this podcast. And a regular um, thing that we talk about is the fact that um, a lot of people get into the workforce and, and they feel obliged to run for the CEO role exactly. because um, that's what mum wants me to do. Exactly. You know, I want to keep up with the Joneses. I need that big thing on my yep. business card. But at the end of the day, there's nothing wrong with being a great follower. Um, and there doesn't seem to be enough uh, positive reinforcement about the fact that uh, uh, there are pros and cons and strengths and weaknesses yep. uh, which are very complementary. Well, we had a, we had a corporate... Uh uh, day recently, 90, 90 CEOs in a room mm-hmm. from from all over a region, mm-hmm. running different parts of a business. And I started the day with, um, could you put your hand up in the room if you're a leader? Right. And so 90 hands go up. Yeah. And I go, well, can you put your hand up if you're a manager? No hands go up. Oh really? And I, and I said, right. So uh, so you're all leaders. That's great. Uh, and society, of course, is pushing for us to all be leaders. Right. You know. And I said, now let's have a look at what a good leader is. They're good with people, et cetera, et cetera. Now let's have a look, look at what a manager is good at. So managers are really good with process, mm-hmm. and therefore, by definition, mm-hmm. they're really good at making money. Mm-hmm. Right. So if but, we, uh, um, I would not think that you could, you were a leader or a manager. I mean, to my, in my mind, being a leader requires you to also be an excellent manager. Or well, is that not right? Well, I I believe that you have a natural skill set. Right. And so entrepreneurs are naturally good at ideas, making change, etc., etc. Yeah. The opposite skill set of that is the manager. Mm. 
So you have actually nine profiles. There's a there's some people that have a blend, mm-hmm. and we actually measure the percentages that right. they have. So all of us use all three, but some people under profile are, are, are have a, a weak third one. Wow! And they just don't use it very much. Oh, you know, that's so. fascinating. And so these profile tools are things that you developed internally. Yep. Right. So. Um, uh, you mentioned earlier, you know, you were uh, in funds management. Yep. Uh, you weren't a small business consultant, but you became, you started consulting small business. You, you weren't a leader or, you know, a, a trained leader, and yet you are, you are leading a, a big business. You're not an org psych. So how do you, you know, even get the sort of awareness to say, let's develop this org psych style tool when it, uh, that must be um, have been really interesting process for you. It's it's been a fascinating journey over the whole seventeen years, yeah. and as we've gone along, it's been. Uh, see, I think most of our product development has come from the client, right? And and the client will say, "Look, you've come in and trained us on this, and we've yeah. used Myers Briggs or something, and uh, and we and we're still having fights and arguments right. or something. You know, just something. Fix us. It fixes. <laughs> you fix fix." fix this one Darren <laughs> right. and you go well okay buddy. Right. so we would research the market trying to find other tools yeah and we, we then we unpick things and we go well what's really causing the problem here mm. and if it's a comms problem then we go looking for comms tools and mm-hmm. we can't find one we can't find one mm-hmm. um, the big one that we're getting a lot of uh, work around presently is burnout right okay. and so we have a tool that measures burnout yeah and so you can put you know however many people in a team right. through a profile right. and it will tell you which people in the team are actually close to burnout. Wow, I imagine that uh, there could be some resistance uh, because if I'm an employee and I'm on a good wicket, I've got a great salary, the last thing I want my boss to find out is that I'm almost close to burnout because that could preempt you know, a situation that I don't want to happen. Yeah, and, uh, and so uh, all of these profiles are personal profiles. Mm-hmm. They're not for distribution to the boss. Right. Um, and that's how it has to be. Yeah, sure. Uh, it's a bit like, I don't want to go to the doctor and have a cholesterol check because then I might realise that things aren't very good. Yeah. But uh, on the flip side, if you take the serious side, if people are close to burnout, then they're close to illness. Oh, for sure. And yeah, yeah. people want to know that. Mm-hmm. So whilst you say, you know, people might be worried about you know, that information getting in yeah, the hands yeah. of the boss or something. Actually, the flip side is there are people out there who are way overworked in bigger right. businesses, and this tool will tell them okay. just how bad things are. So ignorance isn't bliss. <laughs> <laughs> well, not when it comes to your health, I sure. don't believe. No, I think, fair enough. You, know, you need to put that first. Okay, and so um, we're sitting here, it's uh, early in 2016, when you're looking now towards the future for Sherlaws and... Um, and firstly, in terms of your own personal um, uh, journey, in terms of your how your career is going to unfold, what are the kind of things that you're excited about for yourself? Uh, well, I've recently moved um, uh, out of managerial type roles within our own company, and I've been asked to set up the Sherlock's Foundation. Right. And the foundation is already now working with business schools like okay. the, like the Cass Business School in London. Okay. Uh, and we're working with other um, organisations that help businesses get started and stuff. Right. So, so the intention is for um, helping individuals to start their own business. There's a, a, a massive amount of people in corporates that want to get out and start yeah. businesses and yep. don't know where to start. Mm-hmm. So we can help help those sort of people. We can help businesses get started who are, who are on the road to that sort of thing and in a foundational sense. Right. Um, and then if you flip it around to the other side, there's a, a lot of people who, who are in careers and uh, and they're under a lot of load of stress. Mm-hmm. 
and you know just bringing in bringing in the the business side of things doesn't solve all the problems mm-hmm. so the foundation is going to have a heavy emphasis around your health okay and your family right those sorts of topics and running programs for people so they can get that sort of stuff done and so where's the foundation at now in terms of uh you know it's um uh, moving from idea to implementation. Well, the first thing we went and did was we actually purchased a, a, a business. So the foundation went out and bought a business, and right. that's called Families in Business. Okay. Um, it's uh, got ten thousand families. Uh, right. Fam- business p- families who actually run businesses. Mm-hmm. Um, ten thousand families on a register. They attend events and programs and all that sort of stuff. And there's and the, the interesting statistics starting to come out of that side is. That uh, you know, one of the fallouts of being successful in business is there's a, a very high uh, probability of mm-hmm. uh, dependency issues. Uh, drugs, alcohol, gambling mm-hmm. shows up in families, mm-hmm. second, third generational type stuff. Right. Um, so someone goes out, builds a business, makes a lot of money, and the grandchildren then have to work out how to manage all the yeah, money, yeah. And et cetera, et cetera. So, so getting out into society early, mm-hmm. it's this preventive stuff, you know, mm-hmm. it's getting out to society early and talking to business people about, look, you're just charging off at 100 mile an hour trying to make yourself successful. Sure. And one of the fallouts of that is your, your grandchildren are going to have to deal with all this right. stuff, you know. So can we put some things in place early mm-hmm. to, you know, have to, to create a better family for right. you? Sure. You know, like, um, and uh, I mean, there's, I've only met two families statistically out of 17 years. I've mm-hmm. only met two families that have gone past second generation where there's no drugs, no gambling, or no alcohol mm-hmm. in the family tree. Mm-hmm. Only two. Mm-hmm. And that's a horrible statistic. Sure. And okay, so that's uh, the foundation. And so you said something you'll be rolling out globally? Yeah, uh, absolutely. The, okay. The things like the, like the schools that we're getting involved in and that, um, you know, CAS. CAS uh, is in about 38 countries or something around the okay. world, so they, they'll just they'll want us to go with them. Sure. Yeah, it's uh, so we're in 12 cities, but they'll be going straight into 12 cities. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a, it's a big project. It's exciting. And um, so, how much of your time is that taking up now? It's uh, it's this year, 2016 will be about half my time. Okay. Uh, 2017, uh, hopefully a bit, bit bit higher than that. Right. So something something like. And Three so, quarters of my okay. Time. And so, what about then within the um, your traditional shareholders business? You mentioned that you're in twelve countries around yep. the world. You know, what, what's the next sort of um, major milestone for that business? We uh, we have been out in the marketplace talking to people who run funds. Yeah. And we've been talking to corporates who run innovation hubs mm-hmm. and that sort of stuff. Uh, we're finding that people who are running private equity funds and all that sort of stuff, there's, there's a massive funding gap mm-hmm. out there, and we want to go and help provide a solution into that space. Okay. Yep. Um, fund people in private equity uh, are telling us that they've built their portfolio and now struggling to manage the portfolio mm-hmm. and keep finding new deals mm-hmm. and new assets. So we, we can go in and just manage portfolios mm-hmm. for people in that sense. But this gap's a big, a massive big problem in society. If mm-hmm. you take it as a societal issue, mm-hmm. there's a lot of new businesses getting started and if they need money, the angel networks and stuff, all the peer-to-peer lending is sure. is, is technology driven. And yeah. so it, it's, it's, it's now rampant around the world. It's mm-hmm. very well established. Mm-hmm. Um, 
But once you go over about a, a million Aussie yeah. and start to try and get funding mm-hmm. up to about five million Aussie, mm-hmm. it's really, really hard mm-hmm. to get the money. And then I suppose um, also in line with that is the fact that you've got all of these baby boomers who their asset is their business, yep. they're now wanting to exit yep. and they've got to find people to buy it. Yeah. You know? And um, if people don't have the money to purchase or younger people simply have no appetite for it, then you know that's a... Uh, a big issue for us, isn't it? Well, the the, the topic around baby boomers is is, is actually really clear. There, mm-hmm. There's uh, statistically loads of them now wanting to retire, mm-hmm. and will continue to do so over the next five to ten years. Mm-hmm. X X gens don't have the capital to pay to buy out these businesses that are worth as much as they are. Yeah. And Y gens have no interest in buying something; they want to build things. Yeah. You know, they're technology driven. Sure. So they, they see the money and coming up with a great idea and right. building a piece of technology. So baby boomers are going to have to get their heads around selling their businesses either via trade so mm-hmm. or, or into private equity. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so you're hoping to provide some framework to enable that to happen in a, in a, a, a more easeful and graceful way. But what, what, uh, what we realised was that the source of our knowledge come from the buy side. Mm-hmm. So when we look at businesses, we naturally think about if I was to buy this thing, well, you know, what's the upside, what's this, what's that? Mm-hmm. When when a baby boom is selling their business, they're on the sell side mm-hmm. and they tend to go and get advice from people who, who help sell, you know, they're the sell side people. Yeah. So we walk in and go, you know, look, nice document, blah, 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 but yeah. on the buy side, there's three gaps in there that yeah. I, you haven't got answers to. And so essentially what um, you're saying is if you enable us to give you uh, the support, we can help you to fill in those gaps so that it might take you a little while to get it to sale, but when it gets to sale, it's going to be worth a lot more. Well, it's sales and fundraisers. You know, we, we, helped, a, um, we helped a mid-sized corporate recently raise uh, about 700 million uh, pounds. Right. Uh, they wanted to an do an acquisition. They'd been in the marketplace for four or five months mm-hmm. trying to raise the money just getting nowhere with it mm-hmm. uh, we got introduced to, to the lady that run it we sat down with her for like an hour mm-hmm. and she said I can't understand why I'm not getting the money I've had all this advice etc yeah. etc and I just said look from the buy side this is the issue yeah. and she had a capability issue and I said this is the issue and I said you're not going to get the money until you fix that issue Yeah. so you know and she, she was just like why hasn't anyone else told me this Right. and I said well they come from the sell side Right. You know, they come from the managerial sell side it's so it's not going back to this idea of there's an agenda it's more just an ignorance of uh, the right advice to provide It's in my view it's just m- more that people just never come from that side of the fence yeah. you know it's just if you don't come from the buy side then you don't think like sure. a buyer you, yeah. don't, you don't know what to look for and in the small business market you know a, a lady said to me this week uh, I'm building my business up to 10 million for sale and I said well then you need a hundred million pound uh, sorry a hundred million dollar strategy for mm-hmm. your business and she said well, what for right and it was just that to me I just go well because the buyer's going to want to buy it at 10 and take it to 100 yeah so if you don't give the buyer right. here's how to take it to 100 
then they have to make up the plan themselves. Right. Build it and they will come. Yes, exactly. Yeah, right. Okay, so, great. And what about it at a more sort of uh, macro global level? When you're looking at a business and you get the opportunity to look at lots of different kinds of business yep. all over the world, what, what are the things that are exciting you about um, new evolving trends and uh, opportunities for business in general? There's, um, there's a statistic out there which shows, if you go small business market for a moment, uh, there's um, some there's some inter- horrible but interesting statistics out there. Um, so you know something like uh, 93% of uh, all technology plays done two years ago didn't provide a return to investors. Right. And yet everyone's pouring their money into technology. Wow. It's just like yeah, hang on a minute. Like so where could the money go to sure. and, and why is it such a low percentage for mm-hmm. such so so it's really starting to show up this high risk high return conversation mm-hmm. um, if you start to look at um, social and you know is social a bubble and will it will it burst at mm-hmm. some point and is that just a big thing waiting to turn tides etc yeah. etc there's, there's something in there it is amazing how many people are starting to opt out of the whole social media absolutely they're just overwhelmed and exhausted by it all um, and uh, what has to happen in corporate is um, the, only, the only way social is going to sort of stay inside the corporate is when the corporate lets go of control of it. Mm-hmm. So corporates are trying to control the agenda of social, mm-hmm. um, which is natural. That's, that's the thinking, right? Sure. But until the, until the staff inside corporates are given a personal brand yeah. and uh, personal profiles and are yeah. encouraged to go down that pathway... Mm-hmm then corporate's not going to get the result that they want out of social. And it's interesting, I've just literally uh, uh, had a great conversation with one of your team, uh, Lindsay, and we've been talking a lot about that because that's the space that I work in, uh, C-suite executives in organisations wanting to manage their own career to realise their full potential, plus uh, enable their organisations to achieve its greatest success and the brand of their leaders as a person is so critically important now. And yet... uh, there is almost this uh, reticence or reluctance on organisations to do much about that because, hey, if my person has too much of a brand, then they're a flight risk. Yep. Uh, better to be a faceless organisation, um, which I think is very short-sighted in, in the current uh, um, social media environment. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, we've talked a lot about business today, and uh, so I suppose I like to ask at the end, tail end of these conversations, outside of work, what are the kind of things you like to do to keep you fresh and keep the tank full of petrol and uh, oh excited God. about uh, life? Well, I'm uh, I'm I'm one of those curious characters that you find out that um, I'm into cooking cakes. Right. Uh, so I've been making my children's cakes ever ever since uh, the first was born ten years ago. Wow. And if you saw Darren, you he, you obviously don't eat many of your cakes. I, I don't eat many. He's a very either. skinny guy. <laughs> I don't. I don't eat many. Either. Right. Um, no, they're um, they're works of art. These things. Oh, really? They are. They are. Yeah. Like the last one I made was um, an Alice in Wonderland. Oh wow. Uh, tea party. Okay. It was it was uh, a production of six cakes Is on top of right? each other. So you know it stood it stood way high. I have to introduce you to a friend of mine, Trina Thompson, who is a world-recognised cake decorator, and she travels the world training people how to make those cakes. Uh, you would uh, connect the two of you via social media. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> oh, good. And so, uh, how many cakes would you bang out a month? Well, it's it's a uh, it's for the family stuff, so yeah. it's um, I keep getting bloody requests to make them, but special occasions only. Yeah, it's well three three kids plus plus uh, plus us plus yeah. the occasion, so I do all the Christmas cakes. Right. And, We'll do one for Easter and wow. so you know probably one a month. Okay, 
And, uh, and so do you find that your mathematical competency uh, transfers across into being a baker? Well, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm meticulous about the stuff. So about measurements and so on. Yeah, I'm, um, I like to, you know, I like it's got to be right. Right. And that's the, that's the and I just, I don't know, it's one of those things that just, you know, everyone has their thing they relax sure. into. Yeah, I, yeah. I can spend a whole day in a kitchen just right. making a cake and I'm perfectly but happy. I imagine if you're in the kitchen, everybody else has to stay well out of there. No, the kids get in and help me now. Oh, do they? Yeah, right, they, okay. They, they cut up things for me and... It's, right. uh, it's a bit of a production. Yeah, yeah. My thing is music, and uh, it's amazing how many musicians are great at mathematics and vice versa. Ab- absolutely. Very, very strong correlation. Yep. Um, yeah, okay, great. So, look, uh, before we wind it up, just finally for people who are listening to this podcast um, who are earlier in their career and are wanting to um, uh, be as successful as they possibly can, what would be some um, just core pieces of advice that you'd offer to round out this discussion? We, we did a really, really interesting exercise recently, and it was it was one of those ones in a in a meeting that just popped out, right. uh, not not by design, in other words. And I was asked about um, how I go about mathematically valuing companies. Okay. And so I said, look, I work to a formula, and here's the formula. Yeah. And the formula showed, you know, if you take benchmark multiples in in industries, what were the specific assets that you needed to build right. to get to get the valuation up higher. And then this lady in the room said, so do you have a formula for doing that for careers? Right. And I, it just stumped, wow. it stumped me and I went, actually, do you know you can apply the same formula? Right. And so I looked up the assets that a business can run right. and we just reapplied them. Fantastic. So, you know, I said, you know, if you go up five layers on the valuation model, you're up to channels. Mm-hmm. And so if you apply that into a personal space, it could be called a black book. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's, if you go up to the top, it's called a brand. So if right. you think about a person's personal brand. Okay. Uh, and if people are interested in reading more about that, have you written uh, anything around that that they could have access to? I haven't written, I haven't written the article on that one topic. Right. Uh, we've got articles on lots of other topics, sure. but, um, but not on that, that specific topic. All right, well, perhaps uh, I'll... Uh, Push me for that one. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think my audience would uh, find that uh, extremely interesting. Yeah. Well, look, uh, we're sitting here on a roof in a new farm, and it is bloody hot. hot. And uh, I'm melting. I don't know about you, but Absolutely. I think it's a good time to wind it up and uh, maybe go and have a cold beverage. Perfect. Good on you. Thanks, Darren. I really appreciate your time, and uh, safe travels back to the UK. Pleasure. Thanks. I hope you enjoyed that discussion and I'm looking forward to having you along for future episodes of the Aritate podcast. In the meantime, have a fantastic afternoon.